uh, four weeks, we're going to be looking at sexuality. That's uh, tonight. Uh, next week, I was looking at my notes. Next week, uh, we're going to be looking at the modern world and how the modern world messes us up spiritually. And the weird part is, is most people don't know how the modern world works. There's certain things about modernity, the modern world, that tempts us to live as if God does not matter or exist. And we're going to talk about that next week. And that is so important, I think, even for understanding our topic tonight, but also the other topics. Then we're going to look at, um, do all religions lead to God? That's week three. And then week four, we're going to talk about science and faith. And that's a topic that I'm doing a lot of teaching on. I'm teaching it in Surrey at a college, and I'm teaching on Tuesday night uh, on science and faith, 10-week class. So I'm going to condense it in one night uh, for, the, uh, for the last session, okay? So, tonight, is gay okay? A Christian perspective on homosexuality. I would like you to get into small groups and discuss these scenarios. Okay, a gay married couple wants to come to your church. The couple is overt in their affection for each other. Some people in the church are questioning whether they should ask the couple to leave. What would you do if you were a leader? A couple approaches you as a leader in the church and asks if they can become members of the church. Or let's say they just ask, you know, could we become members? What would you say? They want to serve in your church. Could they? In what capacity? And now this is interesting. As a church, if a spouse in a same-sex marriage died and the surviving spouse would like to hold a celebration of life service at your church, would you allow it? Would there be any restrictions? If so, what would they be? So easy questions just to kind of kick things off. <laughs> so, because um, I think the, these, these are realities. Uh, these are realities that the church is facing. It's not they will face, they're facing now. I'm in conversation with a lot of churches and these are, I got a pastor calling me uh, a couple weeks ago saying, help, what do I do? This is the issue that, uh, that we have. We have a, uh, a transgendered person in our church who wants to be baptized. What do I do? So these are, these are biggies. So just take a few minutes. Take um, maybe three minutes and just get in groups of three. Don't take a long time to do this. Just look, grab somebody, and just have a quick conversation. And uh, we'll come back to this in a moment.
Okay, uh, maybe uh, another minute or so. These are big topics, but uh, we could talk all night on this. All right, let's uh, let's bring it bring it in. <laughs> I know some things about Hillside. You guys are a very friendly, chatty church, so I know I have to kind of reel it in a little bit. Now these are these are not easy questions, are they? I mean, some you might find pretty straightforward, but uh, some some may not be. Um, these are just some of the issues that the church is facing now. Um, so, you, I mean, we didn't talk about transgender. Transgender is, is, is a little bit of a, a different uh, topic, but uh, I, I know a number of churches where, where you have a person in the church who's transitioning to become, let's say, going from a girl to being a boy or a, a, a woman to becoming a man and then asking if they could work with men's groups instead of women's groups because they were working with women's groups or, or men who were working with men and now transitioning to become female and wanting to, to lead a small group for females. So what do you do with that? It's going to get complicated. It's very complicated. Now, for our topic tonight, what I want to do is just begin with two things. And one is to begin with a yes and a no. And this is absolutely key. What do I say yes? Yes to respect and compassion. You and I are followers of Jesus Christ. And because we're followers of Jesus Christ, we are committed to show respect and to extend compassion and care to those with different views than ourselves views and practices that we would even oppose. As Christians, we argue for um, a public square where people can come forward and bring their ideas. They don't have to check their ideas at the door. They don't have to check their faith at the door, but can come to the table, lay out their perspectives, and to hash it out. That is something as Christians we have to hold on to. So as Christians, we, we begin with a yes, yes to respect, and compassion, but we're also people of the truth. And so we say no to compromise. And from a Christian perspective, we align ourselves to Jesus Christ and His Word, and we cannot compromise on what is revealed to be true. But we operate in grace and truth. Now, just to give you a little bit about my background, this doesn't make me anything, but I'm just, just by way of background, um, my closest friend for the past 20-something years is, is openly gay. And uh, he and I are just very close friends. And we get together regularly. And I've walked with my friend through many trials and tribulations. And he's walked with me. And, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for my friend. He's, he's, he's that close of a friend. And during those 20-plus years, we've talked about many of the issues that we're talking about um, tonight. Now, again, that doesn't make me anything. It doesn't make me an expert. But it just gives you maybe a little bit of background. Um, my very closest friend this is an area that uh, he struggled with but now he's he's he's, he's um, 
living in uh, an openly gay lifestyle. So, I said we begin with a yes and a no, and I, I say, you know, our perspective that we're going to come at this tonight is a Christian perspective. That's important. And we realize that uh, as Christians, we need to lay our cards on the table and to recognize that as Christians, we are people of the book, right? We align ourselves to the Bible as God's revelation to humanity. That means as a Christian, I need to know the Bible well, Right? I need to not only read the Bible, I need to know how to read the Bible for all it's worth. Uh, I need to know not just how to read the Bible, I need to know how to apply the Bible to my life. And so as a Christian, I'm theologically oriented. And that's okay. And so here's one of the challenges. You say to somebody, if you're engaging in a conversation, you say, well, I'm coming at this from a Christian perspective. And they're like, ah, yeah, well, yeah, you're Christian, yeah. Well, yeah, you're, of course you're going to be biased. And to which I will always say, hang on. Every single one of us comes to the table with some preconceived assumptions about reality. I'm just laying my cards on the table. So when I teach this class in different contexts, I will tell students, I'll say, look, every single one of you have come up with answers to these four fundamental questions of life. And the four questions are this. What is real? What is good? What's the problem with this world? And what's the solution? And I'll say, I guarantee you that every single one of you, at least at some point along the way, have tried to answer those four questions. What is real? I didn't say who is God, because you may not believe in God. That's fine. What is reality? Describe reality. What do you think is the ultimate good, the summum bonum? What's the, what's the greatest good? What's the problem in this world? And you might think it's me, a Christian, and I might be the problem. And what's the solution, right? And so, I'm, so never, as a Christian, never be shy to say, I'm coming to this perspective from a Christian perspective. And, and don't be shy because everybody comes to issues with preconceived assumptions. You're just being honest. I'm just, this is where I'm coming from. I mean, laying the cards on the table, okay? And so all of us, again, have a basis for what is uh, real. We all have a preconceived picture of reality. What is real? What is good? What is the problem? What is the solution? And for us, as Christians, our starting point, one of our starting points, is Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. Where Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh that's a picture of marriage and in that marriage in the first marriage and every marriage since god joins together particular members of the opposite sex in a natural relation unlike any other we read in genesis that the man and the woman the husband and the wife they stood before each other naked and felt no shame so it's this beautiful picture of intimacy, physical and emotional intimacy. So that's our starting point. But then having laid that out, um, you know, let me move along. Sorry, I have these slides. I should have edited them. Um, let's talk for a moment. Well, what does the Bible then say about God's activity in creation and about the whole issue of homoeroticism? Now, often I'll use the term homoeroticism rather than homosexuality. And the reason why I do that is I like to focus on the, um, 
the action, the, the decision, the behavior, rather than an, an identity. And we'll talk about that in a moment. First off, we need to realize that in the Bible, the Bible doesn't discuss homosexuality or homoerotic behavior that much. Um, you know, given the heat, given the conversation in our culture today, you would think that, hey, every second page, the Bible's dealing with it. But it's not. It's not. I mean, uh, issues of, of justice, idolatry, those issues are much more prevalent in the pages of Scripture than homosexuality. Secondly, we have to realize, you know, the Bible says nothing, nothing about sexual orientation. Because sexual orientation, the idea that one's identity is connected to one's sexuality, is a concept that's only been around for maybe just over a century about 150 years old. So you're not going to find in Scripture any reference to you know, sexual orientation because that's a pretty modern concept. It doesn't exist. The Bible's not concerned with orientation, but the Bible does say a few things about the right context in which sexual intercourse is to be expressed and practiced. And in doing so, it mentions a number of verses, a handful of verses, about the practice of homoerotic behavior. Okay, so where are those passages? Some of you may be familiar. Genesis 18 and 19, that's the story of what? Yeah, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And Sodom and Gomorrah is often, uh, those passages are often cited in reference to um, practice of homosexuality. Now, it's not that cut and dry because the focus of the passage is violence, it's rape, it's wickedness. Um, rather than, you know, homosexuality per se. Yet, having said that, it does seem um, that Sodom's sin was primarily sexual, and this is reinforced in later Judaism and Christianity. We see in Jude 7, for example, a reference to it. The other passage is Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, which is a passage that says, "...do not practice homosexuality." Having sex with another man as with a woman, it is a detestable sin. Now, again, notice the focus of this passage is the act, not the motives for the act, okay? Now, quoting this passage from Leviticus is not a slam dunk at all. It's not, it's not, uh, it, it will only get you so far if you're trying to make a case against homosexuality or if you're trying to talk about ethics. Um, because the Old Testament has a lot of prohibitions that generally are disregarded by the church. There's lots of dietary things, you know, talking about uh, shellfish, right? Though we do know it's good not to be shellfish. Um, <laughs> sorry, yeah. I'll, I'll just clam up on that one. Um, but the whole idea of dietary restrictions and things like that, people can say, well, hang on, that seems like you're picking a cherry there. Why are you focusing on this particular passage and you're ignoring a lot of other dietary restrictions and things that you don't follow? Why are you isolating this? Which is a really good question. It's a very good question. But one of the things you could, I would say in response to that is that within the larger context of, the, of Scripture, 
it still places the activity of homosexuality, of homoerotic behaviors, in a negative sense. And as, a, as Christians, we don't read the Bible in a flat, as a flat text. We always place passages within a larger narrative, a larger story, right? We just don't pick out different verses. But placed within the grand narrative of Scripture is, is still, still um, placed in a negative sense, right? There's other passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, we, we don't have, yeah, we, we don't have to go into, the, the big one is Romans 1. I have in your notes a couple observations about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, there's other passages in Judges, Ezekiel, 2 Peter, and Jude. And all these passages basically place the action of homoerotic behavior in a negative sense, in a negative light. Now, a key passage in the whole issue is Romans chapter 1. Let's take a little bit of time and look at Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, if you have your notes, you'll see I, I have uh, some of the verses. Let's begin in verse uh, 21. It says, talking about the, the state of humanity and creation, it says, They knew God, but they would not worship Him as God or even give Him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So they worshipped and served things that God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Focus in here. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. Now that's a heavy text. So let's spend a little bit of time on this. What is Paul saying in this passage? Now, a couple things. One, what we do matters. What we do in our lives matters. They matters because our lives are not our own. And so we read in, in, in uh, Romans chapter 1 what Paul is saying. Is, look, he says, look, everybody, simply because we are created by God, have a sense that God exists. What is called a sensus divinitatis. We, we have a sense that God exists. And we look around and we see uh, the snow-covered mountains yesterday and golden ears. And we see God's creation and we have a sense that God exists. I've said this before, it's a lot harder to see in Saskatchewan than here, but even in Saskatchewan, <laughs> maybe not coming from the airport in Winnipeg. I, think, I don't know if you, you'd probably be an atheist forever. Um, <laughs> sorry. Anybody from Winnipeg here? All right, so I'm okay. Oh, no, I see the hand, sorry. <laughs> Especially from the airport. Other parts of Winnipeg's okay. But Paul's point is this. He says there's something in creation that points us to God's reality, like that nobody is without excuse. But what happens, what happens is that even though we have a sense of God, humanity rejected this. 
Even though we have a sense of, of right and wrong, like later on Paul talks about the law being written on our hearts, it, it gets distorted. And the way it gets distorted is by three exchanges that Paul talks about. He says, one, he says, people, they exchange the glory of God for the foolishness of idolatry. And so even though God gave men and women a window through which they could see God's reality, what men and women did is they closed the blinds. And rather than worshiping God, they, rather than worshiping the Creator, they turned their attention to the created, Right? And instead of having loyalty to God, they exchange that for a loyalty to things. And the reality is, is every human heart is created to worship something, whether it be the Vancouver Canucks, the Toronto Maple Leafs, or God, right? That's the first exchange. The second exchange is they exchange the truth of, about God for a lie. And again, they decided to worship creation rather than creator so first they exchange the glory of god for the foolishness of idolatry the third one is they exchange natural relations with members of the opposite sex for relations with those of the same sex and what paul is saying here is that same sex sexual intimacy is an illustration of what happens when idolatry captures our heart and we turn from God's order and design towards ourselves. Now, we're going to come back to this in a second. I know what I just said was pretty loaded. A couple of observations about this passage. One, Paul's not talking about individual people and their individual story. He's talking about the state of humanity. So it's a global description that he's offering. So if somebody said, well, you know, he's not talking about this person, my friend. And no, no, Paul's talking about all of humanity in its original state. Something is broken in humanity. That's what Paul's saying. Secondly, Paul, he points out, uh, let's see if I have this here. Yeah, he points out, one is global, not particular in scope. Secondly, he points out homosexual intercourse for special attention. Why? Well, because it provides a poignant image of the way in which human fallenness distorts God's created order. God created man and woman in his image to cleave together, to be fruitful and multiply, to embody the image of God. And what homosexual union does is it embodies not the image of God, but it actually embodies the state of humanity who reject God for a lie. That means um, rather than the complementarity of male and female reflecting God's image and giving honor, it's a distortion. It's almost a parody of what that ought to look like. I'm just saying this is Paul's, Paul's argument. And it distorts the image of Godness in humanity. And so Paul points out that homoeroticism in general is one sign that our original wholeness is broken. When he talks about being against nature, the actual words in Greek is paraphysin, which means it's a violation of the order, the design which God had created, the fittedness of male-female relations in accordance to the intention of the Creator. And then get this, Paul does not say at the end, he says, and so those who do practice same-sex relations, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be hell. He says, no, no. He says, the very 
nature of same-sex relations has within it its own anti-reward. It doesn't lead to life. It's inherently sterile. And he, that's why Paul at the end, he says, and th they receive their own reward. Now, that's a key passage. Now, along the way, and I'm sure that some of you may have um, questions, or we're going to give you opportunity for questions, but what I'd like to do is explore this topic a little bit more by looking at, um, at, at just some of the objections that I hear along the way. And maybe we'll hit on some of yours. If, if they're not, then you'll be able to ask questions. But here's one of the objections I often hear. Say, come on, David. I mean, look in history. The church has been so inconsistent. It's been on the wrong side of history for so long. I mean, look at the issue with slavery. I mean, the people use the Bible to support slavery. Uh, issues on, on women and women's rights and things like that. And is this not simply another case where the church is being inconsistent? Eh, it's a good question. But you need to unpack that. And see, this is where, and I've always said this, I'll say this till I die. If you want to defend your Christian faith, the best way to defend your Christian faith is to know history. You can study, you know, logic and philosophy, and that's all helpful. But the best, yeah, yeah, yeah I know you like history. Yeah, <laughs> I saw the big smile on his face, right? The best way to do apologetics is to know history. And so when people say, well, what about, you know, the slave trade? Right away, it's like, okay, tell me about it. Tell me about Christianity and its impact on slavery. And I'll tell you that it was in medieval ages, and it's because of Christian impetus that the slave trade ended. It was reintroduced um, in the Renaissance, which, interestingly enough, was a movement away from God, more towards man. Um, and yes, it, it was defended um, by some people, especially in the Deep South and the States. But it always ran against, you're always going to have to shoehorn that against Scripture. And it's no accident that the key proponents or the key um, activists who brought about the abolition of the slave trade were who? Were Christians. Like who? Wilberforce. William Wilberforce. The Quakers. Any other person? The Quakers actually were first. John Wesley? Wesley was, a, was a, an abolitionist. Um, and so you could say, even with all these issues, you know, with slavery and uh, some of the issues with it, there's always tension. There's always going to be tension. But there's no tension in Scripture whatsoever when it comes to the issue of homoeroticism. It's just not there. And if you're going to make that case, you really do have to start walking away from Scripture. You, you, you do. Secondly, a, a, an, an objection I sometimes hear is that, well, what Paul is getting at here, he is disapproving of homoeroticism practiced within the context of male prostitution or the practice of what is called pederasty, which is uh, older, the, the Greek practice, the Hellenistic practice of erotic love with older men and young men. But again, there's no evidence at all that Paul's dealing with prostitution or pederasty. And even then, young men who are given in these relationships were usually teenage males, which would be the same age as young women were given a marriage. So the argument doesn't really work. And then people will say to me, well, David, it's 2016. 
I mean, come on. Get with the now. I mean, it's, 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 it's old thinking. It's not immoral. It's just old thinking. I mean, you're... Your, your head's way back, you know, 2,000 years ago. Times have changed, David. But we don't want to fall into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Right? Assuming simply because we're in a newer date that things have necessarily radically changed. The first century, within a Greco-Roman context, was extremely gay-friendly. And what Paul's saying in the, in the first century runs just as much against the prevailing culture of the time as what I'm saying tonight. Okay? So you can't fall into chronological snobbery. That's where I love history. History is a lot more complex than people like to talk about, right? And then some people say, well, isn't Jesus all about love? Isn't he always about welcoming outsiders, those on the margins of society, in the same way Jesus welcomes the outsiders of our day who are the sexually marginalized, sexual minorities? And to which I would respond, yes, uh, it, Jesus is all about welcoming the outsiders. Absolutely, which would include those who are sexually marginalized. Absolutely, a hundred times, yes. But what does it mean to extend welcome? Can you welcome someone yet still disagree with a person's lifestyle and call them to repent? If you had a friend who is, who is cutting herself and you're a friend, would you not say, yes, you're still my friend, but stop cutting yourself? Right? That's what extending love is. I mean, grace and truth go together, right? And, and we have a perfect example of this in Scripture. And the, the example is Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, right? She gets brought forward, dragged forward. She's caught in adultery, which I always find funny. It's like, if she was caught in adultery, where's, why isn't he there, right? <laughs> so she gets called forward, and, and you, you know the story. And you know, anyone here who is without sin, you cast the first stone, and they all walk away, and Jesus says, nobody, and, and she says to Jesus, did nobody throw stones? Nobody throw stones. And then what does Jesus say? Hey, just go on your way. What does he say? Go and sin no more. Right? He loves her, he welcomes her, but he still calls her to repentance. And the two go, can go together. Now, this is what I often hear. Well, come on, what's your big deal? You know, same-sex marriage. Are you against same-sex marriage? Why? It doesn't harm anyone. It's none of your business. Right? It doesn't harm anyone. It's just between two consenting adults. It's morally acceptable, and people should have the right to choose to do whatever they want to do. To which I would say, you know what? I recognize that in this country, under the law of this land of which I am a citizen, same-sex marriage is legal. And I acknowledge that. And, you know, that, that's just the reality of Canada. And yet, the right to do something does not always equal the right thing to do. Right? We live in a country with lots of casinos, lots of, lots of things that I don't think are right to necessarily be going to and to be, you know, gambling away your money but i recognize you have a right to do this because we live in a pluralistic democracy with lots of different opinions right we don't live in a theocracy we live in a, a, a pluralistic 
democracy, and so I acknowledge that. Yet, I still should be able to say then why I think it's wrong. And, and the way I would answer that is I would ask the question, what does it mean? I say, from a Christian perspective, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And to be made in the image of God means to be male and female. There's a complementarity to being made in the image of God. The way God designed the world, it involves male and female. And marriage depicts mutual cooperation in a designed diversity to steward God's creation because out of marriage between a male and a female, life is created, life is formed, right? In, in a relationship between male and female, each gender is recognized and valued. Within a same-sex relationship, how is the image of God recognized and valued when one gender is excluded? So there's something about the way God designed, He created us, male and female, that in its very essence gives us dignity and value. And to have a same-sex relationship distorts that dignity and value of both genders reflecting the image of God. But I recognize we live in a world where, hey, that's, that it's, it's legal. But I could still say, for the sake of society, and I think for the sake of children, in knowing who their mother and father is, I would argue against same-sex marriage because I don't believe that it brings goodness and flourishing to society. Right? I recognize we, we live in a country where it's, it's legal, but I don't believe that it brings flourishing to our culture, to our, to our society. And that's why I speak out against it. Okay? Now the next one, I think is one of the most powerful objections. I think it's a very, and I've heard this one a number of times. And it's this. Well, David, isn't the Bible and the church's demand for homosexuals not to act on their desires just a little out of touch, life-taking and oppressive? I mean, okay, you're heterosexual. At least you have the potential to live out a sexually fulfilling life. But you're telling me that that option is forever cut off so long as I want to be in a same-sex union. Well, that seems a little unfair. And you know what? I think that's a really good point. I remember speaking to a person once, and uh, he came to me. He's telling me about uh, struggling with same-sex feelings, and and uh, he says, "You know, I'd like to have be in a relationship." And I sat there and I said, "You know what, man?" I said, "Every part of me wants to say, go for it." I said, "But you and I both know our, our lives do not belong to ourselves; that we are subject to someone greater than ourselves, right?" But it, it's hard to say that. Because people say, well, you're heterosexual. At least you have the potential to live a sexually fulfilling life. That, my, are you telling me in my whole life I can't do this? I can never be sexually satisfied? Okay, so how do you respond to this? Well, I think you respond by asking one question. What story shapes your life? There's a great line by... Um, Oh, I, don't, I think it's in your notes, by Alistair McIntyre. 
says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself apart? And here's the thing. It is a Christian story that makes a strange, old-fashioned decree, do not have sex with the person of the same sex, actually seem doable and even reasonable. It actually makes the call not to have sex outside the context of marriage between a man and a woman also doable and reasonable. Why? Because the Christian story, first and foremost, promises the forgiveness of sins. To anyone who had received this through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So our starting point is forgiveness. Secondly, the Christian story reminds us that all of our natural desires and affections are challenged by God to live in a new way. The God that we worship is a God who desires to give us life. He's not one, a benevolent grandfather winking at our indiscretions, nor is he a rule keeper and if you step out of line, he's going to nail you. The God who is revealed in Scripture is a God who desires to give us fullness of life. Okay? And our lives do not belong to ourselves. And he reminds us, somewhat uncomfortably, that our thoughts, our emotions, our choices have lasting consequences. Andrew Wall says, not only does God in Christ take people as they are, he takes them in order to transform them into who he wants them to be. And that's the third point. The Christian story reminds us that we are creatures. <laughs> we are not creators. We're not the creator. We are creatures. And you know what? Jesus can demand from us what he wants. Because we live, we breathe, and we have our being because of him. Now, you may not acknowledge that, but that doesn't change the reality. And so from a Christian perspective, there's no absolute right or guarantee that Jesus is going to lead me in a way where I'll be sexually fulfilled. That's not a right. I have no guarantee that that's going to happen. It's not up to me. And here's the last point, and this is, so, you know, whenever I share this, sometimes in different contexts, younger people, I share this, and they look at me as if I'm from another planet. And I'll say this. The Christian story actually reminds us that suffering may not be a bad thing. Oh, you live in a therapeutic age where the highest value is to feel good and not to have any restrictions on yourself, to say that suffering might be good for you? is a radical thought. Now, I say this sometimes to students. And I'll say, you know, suffering may not be bad. And they're like, you know. I said, well, I said, every single one of you agrees with me. No, we don't. I said, sure you do. No, we don't. I said, well, look, you're in school today, right? <laughs> did you hand in your homework? I saw a lot of you did. You could have stayed home and be playing video games. But you got up in the morning, took a bus, I don't know how you got here, you're sitting in class, you're listening to me, you're writing down your homework, you're handing it in, you're listening to your teacher, you're going to go to the next class. I said, that's hardship, that's suffering. But you all recognize that this suffering can bring goodness. It's actually for your own good. <laughs> you know, it's kind of grumble, grumble, but, um, but it's true. Now, 
one of the things, I love what Wesley Hill said, he says, one of the hardest to swallow, most countercultural, counterintuitive implications of the gospel is that bearing up under a difficult burden with patient perseverance is a good thing. Because the Christian life requires daily dying to oneself. As one author put it, learning to weep, learning to keep vigil, learning to wait for the dawn. Perhaps this is what it means to be human. And could it be that living with unfulfilled desires is not the exception to the human experience, but the norm? This is important. Some people ask this. So, are you saying my sexuality is a sin? I'll get that quite often. So are you saying I'm, I'm sin? And I'll say, hang on. You and I need to differentiate between orientation, identity, and behavior. And, and, and I'll just say this. Now this is, you might disagree with this, and I know there are some people in, in, in even my circles when I share this, they're not quite, they don't always agree with me on this, but I don't like the whole idea of orientation in the first place and we'll talk about this next week when we talk about modernity and how what modernity does to us but why don't i like the concept orientation because it reduces us as human beings and when it comes to sexuality it does two things it either binds you to sin or blinds you to sin so somebody comes up to me and says, you know what, I'm struggling, I'm struggling. I'm a Christ follower, but I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. And some people will say, no, oh, sinner. And you go, well, no, no, man, I haven't done anything. But ah, yeah, but you, you're like, you're, you're gay. I mean, look, that, that's, that's terrible, right? And he's like, I haven't done anything. And so the very fact that he's saying, you know, I have same-sex attraction right away binds him to sin and that's completely wrong he hasn't he's just saying as a human being this is where i'm struggling right and then somebody else comes up and says yo hey well at least i'm i'm okay i still like women right and you're like yeah hey yeah your default's virtue yeah yeah because you like women you're a guy (laughs) really and what both what it ignores is just the multiple, multivaried way that you and I sin. There's no shortage of creative ways, straight or gay or whatever, that we sin, right? We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all sin in creative or non-creative ways. Um, And so I don't think orientation helps because what it does is it says your sexuality defines who you are. And I think our sexuality certainly is part of who we are. Absolutely. But I'll always say this when I'm teaching. I'll always say, who you are being made in the image of God is so much greater than your sexuality. Don't reduce yourself as a human being made in the image of God to simply who you want or do not want to sleep with. Really? That defines you as a human being? That's the identity you're going to run with for the rest of your life? You are missing out so much on who you are. You're so much bigger. You're so much greater. You're so much more dignified and valuable than that. Why reduce yourself to simply your sexuality? Now, again, I'm not saying our sexuality is not important. It is. 
But we're so much more than that. Sometimes people ask me this question. Well, well, what do you think? Can people with homoerotic tendencies be healed? And that's a big controversial issue, especially down in the States, reparative therapy. Um, there's a movement in the United States to make it illegal. You know, any organization that says, you know, we'll counsel you to maybe move you, um, to help you understand your same-sex attraction and maybe move you to a place where you will um, enter into, you know, a husband and wife covenant. Uh, those therapies and those uh, organizations are under the gun right now, on the verge of being declared illegal. So can someone with homoerotic tendencies be healed? I would say yes, in the sense that I've met people who struggled with same-sex attraction and God has healed them. And yet at the same time, I'd say no, um, <laughs> I have friends of mine who struggle with same-sex attraction, and they'll say to me, David, do you think I chose to be this way? He goes, do you think I like being beaten up every day, going to school and coming home? Yeah, that was my choice. And so people always say, well, is it nature or is it nurture, right? Is it, is it a choice or are people, is there a gay gene? To which I will say the human being is much more complex than monocausal explanations. We like to think in binary terms. It's this or this. No, no. I mean, we're human beings. We're pretty complex. There's all sorts of issues going on. And you know what? It doesn't matter if it's one or the other from a Christian perspective. Because simply because that may be the way you are naturally does not, does not make it right. You can have all sorts of natural predilections, but that doesn't make them Right? I always say this in the class because uh, there's a guy named Edward O. Wilson. Does anybody know who he is? He's a, he's a well-known scientist, and he's the uh, founder of, uh, of, 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 of uh, a ph philosophy uh, called sociobiology. And he says, by looking at, at, the, at the natural realm, you can see how, how, um, how animals, how organisms operate, and how human beings operate it, uh, operate, and from the state of is, you can get to a place of ought. You know, this is the way people are naturally, so you can derive your ethics from that. I'll say, okay, hang on. So according to Edward O. Wilson, men exist to propagate their genes. So that explains why men sleep with a lot of women. That's, that's the argument. They sleep with a lot of women. Hopefully, by the more women they sleep with, eventually their genes are going to be propagated. Women are a lot more selective because they only have so many childbearing years and they want to make sure the child they bear is not some dud, right? Some, some, <laughs> right? So they're going to be a little more selective. That's, that's why women are a little more coy, men are a little more uh, out there, and the whole goal is to propagate your genes. Now, if that's natural, if that's reality, then if you're going to derive your ethics from that, it should be perfectly right and good for men to sleep with as many women as possible if it's natural, right? So to say something's natural doesn't make it right at all. There's lots of things that are natural. I remember my one friend uh, back in, uh, at uh, Regent, um, somebody came up to him and said, oh, you're, you're, just, you're just sexually repressed as a Christian. He goes, you're darn, he goes, you're darn right I am. He goes, I have to repress the stuff in my heart. You don't want to see what's in my heart. Of course I have to repress it. You should be glad I'm repressed, right? 
And I thought, oh, brilliant answer. It was good. Okay, should the church support civil rights for homosexuals? Absolutely. We should support civil rights for all human beings, right? Can someone withhold... Uh, oh, um, where do we got here? Can persons with same-sex attractions be... Oh, I think I've gone to the end of my slides, haven't I? Okay, anyhow, I have some other questions here. Um, is it Christianly appropriate for for Christians who have homosexual orientation to continue to participate in same-sex erotic activity? No. Um, and that shouldn't come as a surprise. But here's the point, and this is, this, is a, a, this is a message for us as a church. If someone comes up to you and they're struggling with same-sex attraction and they say, you know, it, would it still be okay if I still lived in my same-sex relationship and, and, and go to church? Is that wrong? You can say, yes, it's wrong. And no, you shouldn't be doing this. But I'll tell you, there better be a follow-up thing that you're going to say, and that is what we as a church and what I as a Christian is going, I'm going to offer you something better. There's no point in saying to somebody, you better not. And not offer something much, much better, which is friendship, Christian community. Right? Because people want to know that that if, if they're going to be celibate, celibate does not equal being alone. And I'll tell you, I've talked to many people. If you talk to people who struggle with same-sex attraction. You say, tell me about your experience with the church. I had a friend of mine, a very good friend of mine. He finally went to his pastor and said, look, I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. And the pastor said, yeah, you better find a different church. Right? And, and those stories are multiplied. So as Christ followers, if someone comes up and saying, this is what I'm struggling with, we better say what we, what we have to offer as a church better be much better than anything you're going to find on Denman Street. Right? We better offer friendship. We better offer community, connection. And if we don't, then that's just wrong. Okay? Should the church sanction and bless homosexual marriages or unions? Uh, no. Now, I think I have in your notes ten commitments that uh, we'd like to make. I want to see if I have them in my notes. Oh, there we go. Yeah, ten commitments. Um, I'm drawing this from Kevin DeYoung's book, What the Bible Really Teaches About Homosexuality. Even, um, number one, we need to encourage leaders to preach and to teach through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the whole counsel of God. <laughs> There's some tough passages about sexuality. We know that. We just taught through uh, 1 Corinthians. And every chapter is like, oh, oh. Because <laughs> it's just there's a lot of sexual issues going on. Yeah, you'll never. I spoke to this one guy. He was a retired pastor in a different country. And I said to him, he'd been pastoring for years, I said, I said, so how did you preach through some of those difficult passages, you know, in 1 Corinthians about sexuality and things? He goes, oh, I just never preached them. His whole ministry career, oh, he goes, I, I, I didn't go there. I'm like, what did you preach? Anyhow, um, we're going to, yeah, so number two is we'll tell the truth about all sins, including homosexuality, along with the sins that are prevalent within our community. 
We will guard the truth of God's word, protect God's people from error, and confront the, the world when it tries to press us in its mold, which is happening in an increasing way right now. We will call all people to faith in Christ as the only way to the Father and the only way to have eternal life. We'll speak of the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll treat all Christians. What do we have here? Um, we'll treat all Christians as new creations in Christ, reminding each other that our true identity is not based on our sexuality, but our union with Christ. And we'll extend God's forgiveness to everyone who comes in repentance. We'll ask for forgiveness when we're rude or thoughtful or joke around those who experience same-sex attraction. There's a lot of repenting that the church needs to do. We will strive to be a community that welcomes those who hate their sin and struggle against it, even when that struggle involves failures and setbacks. And finally, we will seek to love all in our midst, regardless of their particular vices or virtues, by preaching the Bible, recognizing evidences of God's grace, pointing out behaviors that dishonor the Lord, taking church membership seriously, exercising church discipline, announcing the free offer of the gospel, striving for holiness together, and practicing the one another of Christian discipleship and exalting in Christ above all things. Now, I want to leave you just with a couple thoughts. So you have a friend who's gay. How do you respond? One, know the truth and defend the truth with gentleness and respect. Secondly, Ask questions. And don't be so quick to give your opinion. And that, that applies for everything. Ask questions. So what's it like? What, what has been your struggle? Tell me about your experience in the church. That'll be an interesting conversation, right? And then treat your friend like you treat any other friend, right? Offer friendship. Don't expect homosexuals to change their lifestyle before they come to church. We don't place that on other people, do we? Don't make the gospel more difficult than it is. <laughs> By that I mean, as a pastor, I point people to Jesus. I'm not in the business of converting someone to heterosexuality. <laughs> I just point people to Jesus. And so we, we declare the gospel. Stop saying Christians are anti-homosexual. We are pro-life. Avoid offensive ways of presenting our arguments. And I've heard those. I mean, you cringe, you know. You know, homosexuality is no different than any other sin, you know, along with murder and along with... <laughs> so, people are like, what are you saying? Right? And you just... Watch the way you speak. Don't treat homosexual behavior, behavior as the most detestable crime against God. It's not. Don't call homosexuality simply a choice. It's not. Avoid the cliche, God loves the sinner but hates the sin because all people hear is God hates me. Make a long-term difference, not a short-term statement, right? We're in this for friends, friendship. Again, point people to Jesus, not to heterosexuality. Now, I just want to lay this one thing out. Um, just before we're, we're done, I have two resources. One, um, this is a, a great resource by Wesley Hill. And it's called Washed in Waiting, Reflections on Christian Faithfulness and Homosexuality. Wesley Hill is a very good theologian, very sharp guy, writes a lot, uh, but he's a person who also struggles with same-sex attraction. So he tells this story, but it's also rigorously 
theological too, so it's very good. I have just a few copies of those. They're, I think I got them for 10. You can just have them for 10 if, if you're interested. And I have a handful of these. This is something that um, um, was put together by evangelicals and Catholics together. If you don't, I'm not keen about Catholics, you may not want it, but um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this is a different context. I'm just laying it out. I don't know. Um, some of you may not be keen about evangelicals, right? Well, that's week five. That's right. <laughs> that's right. But it's actually a brilliant, brilliant statement on sexuality. It's very, very good and very articulate. And it's available for free online, but if you want to grab a copy, they're just available if you want to grab one. Uh, I'll have them up front. But at this point, what we'll do is we'll probably uh, end our recording uh, because that way you probably feel a little more free to ask questions and because that's kind of the gist of the talk. So at this point, we'll close things off and we'll turn to questions.